the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety, twists, endings, and all, without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're watching the 1988 Bruce Willis action movie, Die Hard. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Die Hard, go away, watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. It's the most wonderful time of the year. A scroll through my Facebook timeline on Christmas Eve would go something like this. I'll be posting pictures of whatever concoction we're leaving Santa and the reindeers. But my friends' traditions differ. Some read Dickens. Some are young, free and single, so they drink themselves silly and post selfies with comedy antlers on their noggins. Others enjoy watching a traditional Christmas film. White Christmas. It's a wonderful life. Merry Christmas! Elf. Santa here? I know him. My personal favourite, the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Oh dear, did I break wind? And of course, Die Hard. It's the most wonderful... don't know about you, but nothing says the season of goodwill like terrorists taking hostages from a large corporation who said we were terrorists while a maverick cop runs around barefoot sometimes with, sometimes without a vest shooting the bad guys in the kneecaps Who are you then? Just a fly in the ointment, Hans The monkey in the wrench The pain in the ass And what spoiler introduction would be complete without quoting Roger Ebert? who seems to be on his own in poo-pooing Die Hard at the time of release. He highlights the uselessness of the deputy police chief character, Dwayne T. Robinson, played by the brilliant Paul Gleason. This is Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson, and I am in charge of this situation. Ebert claimed that all by himself, he successfully undermines the last half of the movie. Well, I got some bad news for you, Dwayne. From up here, it doesn't look like you're in charge of Jack shit. Mark Kermode was amongst the many critics praising Die Hard, claiming it was cowboys and Indians in the towering inferno. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. Which, as I'm sure the good doctor was aware, is what the creators were aiming for, basing the film on a 1979 novel by Roderick Thorpe, Nothing Lasts Forever, a thriller about a German terrorists taking over a Los Angeles office block after watching the McQueen and Newman disaster epic. I promise I'll never even think about going up in a tall building again. In a time of shaky cam, non-stop action movies, is Die Hard still an edge-of-the-seat watch? Is it possible that Bruce Willis looks older in this film than any of its sequels? And how about Alan Rickman? Well, you know that already. And you're right. And when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. He's incredible. Benefits of a classical education. Oh, and a Christmas film? We don't even need to discuss it. Of course it's not. It's just a film that takes place at Christmas. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. 
Now, later in the show, we'll be taking a look at the art of the movie sequel. But first, uh, joining us here in the first of series five of uh, well, no, let, all right, let's get this out of the way, shall we? The first in series of the British Podcast Award nominated spoiler. Hey, come on! <laughs> Are the very yippee Rachel Burnett and the Kaye Andy Gordon? <laughs> Hello. We'll leave that there, I think. Um, so, uh, right, let's just get this out of the way, shall we? Everyone got their posh clothes at the dry cleaners? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, I mean, I, I, we should point this out to the listener, but we have been nominated for a British Podcast Award in the review category, uh, up against some tough competition, but we've already batted some very, very tough competition out of the park. So we are absolutely thrilled. Um, we would thank the listener, but at this point, we, it didn't have anything to do with them. We were <laughs> You know, I'm not going to patronise them. It's, it's pointless, they are isn't ace, it? Though. Yeah, of course. Thank you very much. Um, so, yes, thank you very much. It, it, it raises our status and it makes us uh, very, very proud uh, to be here and doing what we're doing. Um, so thank you especially for listening. Uh, now, back to the uh, the task at hand, Die Hard. Rachel, you're mm-hmm. not one of these lunatics that watch this film at Christmas, are you? I have a strange sort of confession. I think I've watched Die Hard as one film in the past and I've watched it again. And I think it's another film. It's really odd. You're not thinking of Die Hard 2, are you? No, no. Because I I I, love Die Hard with a Vengeance. That's my favourite. Well, I I Um, set out watching this thinking it was about aeroplanes. Oh, no. Uh, And he was on an aeroplane at the beginning. And then I got very confused. (laughs) Well, see, the thing is when... So 1988, so um, 11 years old. Didn't start watching this until I was a little bit older. And then you watch it in bits because you see it on TV. You watch the middle. Then you Mm -hmm. watch a bit at the beginning, then a bit at the end. And then, then you kind of patch it all together and go, that's what Die Hard is. It's ace. And then you sit and you watch it with a critical eye (laughs) and you go, hmm, okay, that's not the film I thought it was. Starts completely differently than I thought it started and it starts much slower than I thought it started as well. Boy, is it slow. My goodness me, at the start, I was like, ooh, I don't know if I've even watched this film. What is this? And I thought I'd like rented the wrong thing from, um, yes, I rented it from (laughs) iTunes. Couldn't find my copy anywhere. I thought you were about to say Blockbuster. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Now there is a blast from the past. But um, no, it was really, it was quite unsettling because it felt like I was watching a completely new and different movie. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll... Tease this out a little bit longer and we'll find out your, your reaction to that. And you're a Bruce Willis fan. I quite like him, actually. He's, uh, I think he's okay in this. Uh, I don't think it's an amazing performance, but I think he was new to the action hero thing in, in this, which uh, you've got to remember. He was just he was mainly known for sort of TV comedy roles and things like this before. And I know that he was, uh, after this, he was nominated for several Razzies for films after this. But I think... Hang on, what are the, what are the Razzies? Let me the stop Razzies you there, Razzies. It's, it's, like the, it's like the Oscars, but for the worst Ah, oh, right, OK, yeah. I think, uh, I've, is, have, I, have I seen Sandra Bullock being yes. very gracious at the Razzies? Yeah, yeah she, yeah, she yeah, went well, to collect it herself, yeah, yeah which right, is yeah. great. But I, I do, I'm not really keen on the Razzies. I think it's a little bit mean-spirited, but... Uh, I think overall, Bruce Willis's career, he has done some some really good things. I think he's quite funny in Death Becomes Her uh, and when he uh, guested in Friends as well. I think he's quite funny. And I think he's great when he's uh, in Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom as well. I think that's a very understated and uh, a really clever piece of casting, Bruce Willis, there. But I think in, in here, he's, he's serviceable. He does, he does a decent action hero role. I just wanted to, to pick up on the, the Christmas thing while we're at it. And yeah, say, I mean, let's, uh, let's get it out of the way, shall we? Uh, the, it's not, is it? So we all agree with that. That's right, yeah? <laughs> well, mm. 
<laughs> people people get irate about this online. They they've really like turned to each other. And as far as I'm concerned, is it a Christmas film? It is if you watch it at Christmas. <laughs> if it's part of your Christmas, that's fair enough. I mean, I would say if The Wizard of Oz is part of your Christmas, which it is for many people, it's a Christmas film, even though it's not really. It doesn't make any reference to Christmas, but it fits in very well with that kind of uh, Christmas Day viewing. Uh, and I think it's obviously played up a little bit in Die Hard as well. I mean, it's not an overly Christmas film, but in the soundtrack, there's Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. Mm. There's Winter Wonderland, you know. Mm. Uh, his wife's called Holly. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> there's, there's lots, of, well uh, lots of links and there. Well done. That. that is great. That is great. I mean, I'm, it's a funny thing because when, I mean, we're, we're recording this in, in springtime, but it, it was still quite cheering to, to hear Let It Snow, Let It Snow. Yeah. I, mm. I, I played, I let the credits run and I was really enjoying it. <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? It is. It is a Christmas film. Because what? it is a Christmas film. Because there are three lines. I've written them down. Um, <laughs> so, well, it's not a line that's spoken. Wait, wait, but Just remember the have... Ofcom license, just no, in case fine. one of the lines There's is no that swearing. line. It's very Christmas. It's no swearing. Um, so, the chap who's, who's dead and on the chair... Um, has now I have a machine gun ho 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 oh, so yeah. you have a Santa oh, reference yeah. um, it's Christmas Theo it's the time of miracles um, and um, if this is their idea of Christmas I gotta be here for New Year's that's mm. also in there as well And but somebody said I think it was on something called Movie Pilot and I'm going to quote them so I hope they don't mind me doing this but they said basically the entire conflict is about McLean saving his marriage in time for Christmas morning Holly invites him to an office Christmas party thus leading to the terrorists and the reason John's in LA is to see his kids for Christmas so this you know it's Christmassy it needs a Christmas background I think that quite a good kind of analogy here is is that on the soundtrack there one of the songs is Christmas in Hollis by Run the MC oh yeah <laughs> now this is this is a Christmas song which isn't on all the Christmas compilations and things like that. And sure. yeah, 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 exactly. Does that not reflect Die Hard? I mean, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. the first thing you would think of. It's it's the outside choice. It's like every Christmas I make my own Christmas playlist and it's got lots of things that aren't on the normal Christmas compilations that you get. And Die Hard feels a bit like that in, in Christmas films. Mm. It's it's kind of an outsider, but it, I think it belongs in there. Yeah. Because it, it's there's enough Christmas in it I mean, it's not a Christmas film, it's a film set at Christmas, but if it's part of your Christmas, then it's a Christmas film. Yeah. Well, you know, then you need to, you should have a look, look at yourself. But um, <laughs> I, I think we should, leave, we should leave this because we could be, I mean, you know, normally I'm quite swayed and I think you've made a really good argument, Rachel. You know, normally I would, I would, I would change my mind because I'm happy to change my mind. All sane people, unlike the leaders of the, of the free world, are happy <laughs> to change their mind. And, you know, that, that shows a, a, a good evolution. I'm not going to on this, so we'll we'll we'll, we'll move we'll move, we'll move it along. So, I, Rachel, when we did the opening bit there, I'm guessing that you've seen it in bits and bats over the years, mm. and you've watched it as a whole. Mm. It had a turgid opening, mm. um, and I I don't know by the sound of things, I, this is this is going to go a bit sour because I think you I by the sounds of it there, I think you're a bit disappointed by watching it as a whole. Well, not so much disappointed, just surprised. Mm-hmm. I think I didn't realise how cliche ridden it was, how the racial stereotypes were rife. I mean, it's very typical of 80s films. You have the black limo driver and he's very sort of, you know, he's a hip cat and all this. And it's like, oh, my God, how many more stereotypes are we going to cling to here? But it was very much the 80s. That's that's what they did. And some of the acting, oh, my God. Alan Rickman notwithstanding. But um, it just felt like Bruce Willis, uh, Bonnie Bedelia and Alan Rickman were just in orbit around these people that were just the most chronic actors Yes, Paul Gleeson, I'm going to look at you as well. <laughs> and um, and yeah. Al, oh my God, Al, those lines. I don't know if it was writing <laughs> or what, but I was like, 
how can you even speak it? Oh, my God. So, yeah, I was a little bit surprised. Not to say I didn't enjoy it, though. Mm -hmm. This is the thing. You watch it going, oh, that's chronic. Oh, my God, the acting. Well, that wouldn't happen. And you do all of this. But in the end, you come out going, oh, I enjoyed that. Yeah, I'm kind of with you there. Mm. It's, it's one of these things where I've had this feeling before, and I think I've watched this probably about two or three years ago, but not all of it, because, you know, I don't watch films in holes. And... I remember at that point thinking 20 minutes has gone and nothing has happened. But actually, I do remember being quite refreshed by that and thinking, well, you know, I like to take a, a ridiculous stance on things and thinking, well, no, this is this is it. Because, you know, we rely too much on having, I don't know, some innocuous answer. You look at those Mission Impossible films and you're always you're on the back end of their last mission and they, they're winning before they, they come round to the, the, the next mission and the one where they get caught out. Um and so you have to have action straight away to do it. Now you just think, well, is this the, the the age we're living in now where you need stimulation as soon as you walk in, or some, can something lead up to something? There's something momentous and something huge, and then even when it it does in this, it's just a few gunshots in the air. It's not. It's not. You know, mm. as 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 awesome as it is. However, I think you know perhaps before this film, I don't know. Maybe you know this is maybe I think this film is a stepping stone film into where we are now. And you know, I, I you know you, you can say that's either either good or bad. Um, I actually really like it though. I I like the fact that we do have that slower beginning because it gives us time to to know where you are with the characters. Mm -hmm. You remember the last action film we talked about was Mad Max Fury Road, and I really didn't like the way. That, that, like most action films now, just punches you in the face straight away <laughs> with like a mad action scene. And that just kept going and going for half an hour. And I was like, right, slow down. Why do I care about what's going to happen to any of these characters? I mean, in this, as Rachel says, some, some of the characters are a bit thin and there's a, I don't care a great deal about what's going to happen to them outside of just not wanting anyone to get killed. But it does give me some basis to, to, to care a little bit. It shows me that there's this strained marriage and uh, it humanises the characters to an extent before it throws them into the maelstrom of the action. And that's something to me in action films, which is, is really key in enjoying it. The name. I was just. I was just been thinking about the name. We've mentioned it a few times. Die Hard. It's. I mean, it's very. It's. I think they came up with a name before they came up with <laughs> anything else, wasn't it? It was very much. What can we stick on the on the front of a, a video cassette? You know, in a rental shop in the uh, down at your local garage because they were in the garages back then. And it Die Hard. It's. It is very very much that. But I, I don't think it really suits the film. At all, really. No, well, I, I think the same thing, they're probably the same with the tagline, because the tagline for this was 12 terrorists, one cop, the odds are against John McClane. That's just the way he likes it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking that is not the way he likes no. it. He's no. obviously a man who's been drawn into this against his will. <laughs> At any point in the film, you could say, just want to be at home in your slippers, like <laughs> having a, a sherry. He would say, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's, he's not in, I mean, I know he wisecracks his way through it a little bit, but... That's just his way of getting through it. He's not enjoying this at all. Mm. And, and again, it's a product of his time in the, uh, the... I think you probably mentioned this earlier a bit, Andy, I think, in the swearing. I mean, I, I noticed just how much swearing there was in this. Yeah. And not not necessarily needed or, you know, in, in, intrinsic with the... You know, I mean, like, all right, like we, we've said the dialogue and the plot and the, <laughs> and the script. Um, well, you know, all, all could perhaps do with a good old Titan. Could go <laughs> go, through, go around once more in the edit, please, guys. Um, but I, I did. I think I, I made a notice of that, because I noted that just because it, I, I did sort of see that, it, I don't know, I suppose now we're coming full circle again now with, what's that film uh, where they've just, action film where they've just had lots of swearing in it, Deadpool, that's it, mm. oh, yeah. Deadpool. And people say, oh, you know, how, how refreshing that is to have a lot of swearing in a 
a superhero franchise. But I don't know. He it doesn't. Mm. He doesn't bring it along for me. Mm. I don't really. I didn't really notice really so much with the swearing that, that it was. Uh, I know that there was like there was a. T, there were, I think there's been several TV edits of Die Hard where they take out the swearing or they they. Uh, I mean, obviously, one of the most famous lines in it is mm-hmm. "Yippee such and such. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's all sorts of ones that say like "Yippee Kimasabi and things like that. And I, I, I watch it and think, who who's watching this? And they're, they're they're offended by the swearing, but they're all right with people getting shot point blank in the face. Why is <laughs> and why are we catering for for people who are offended by swearing but are fine with violence? Why is why should there ever be a TV version of this? It's it's strange. To, I, I think it's just because there used to be different rules with TV that you're only allowed to say certain amount of swear words even after the watershed. So, but then in that case, if they were allowed a certain amount, why? Ugta, the most famous line in the film. That's mm. very true. There are. Um, I wrote down. I love the Parents Guide on the Internet Movie Database. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, there are fifty-six uses of the f-bomb. Oh. Um, I, I just got to tell you the other things that they've written as the parental guide. So people drink alcohol at a party, and That's there true. are one or two of who are clearly drunk. <laughs> so watch out, kids. And um, several characters smoke cigarettes, naughty. And um, cocaine is briefly snorted twice. <laughs> briefly. Mm-hmm. Only briefly. It's very important. But I just, I love it. I just love the parents' guide because they're so accurate with exactly every single mm-hmm. little bit that could possibly be a worry. They'll put it in. It's quite sweet, isn't I it? I love but it. The I think idea it's really that, that anyone is going to be troubled by alcohol consumption. No, in And they're clearly drunk. It's not just the drinking. They're clearly drunk. Did they mention people having their kneecaps shot off? No. Yeah, they did mention that. Seriously, that's they not... mentioned the blood. Um, when they mentioned blood and gore, it was because of his feet and the glass. Mm. That's Is what that... they pointed out. Yeah, not not the being They're shot really, in the head. Yeah. None of that. I'm sorry. I, I do I do respect that that people have different views on swearing and everything. But but come on, when you've got that level of violence, <laughs> just yippee ki just say it. <laughs> Just say it, Paul. <laughs> Just oh, say it. Muddy Funster. Oh, he's gone and done it. <laughs> that's the um, award-nominated radio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this award nomination has gone to your head. I have words after the program. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, one thing, I, I know we, we always like to uh, examine uh, other actors for the roles. And this is uh, it's always good fun imagining if, if they could have done it. I mean, I don't know if you two have seen, but the, the list for this is huge. Um Turned down the role of John McClane, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Burt Reynolds, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, and Richard Gere. Okay. Richard Gere? Richard, no. no. never worked. They were the people who turned the role down. Now, also considered, I mean, when, when you say also considered, I mean, you could say that I was considered. Yeah. <laughs> right, we considered it, no, we said no. Although, you know, I mean, these days I don't look too bad in a vest. Um, oh, considered, just because I'm so old it suits me. Um, also considered, Michael Madsen, um, and that, I mean, this, that's a long time ago, isn't it? Before Michael, Michael Madsen, Madsen was on anyone's right. radar, I suppose. But yeah, Don Johnson, John Travolta, uh, Michael Keaton, Alec Baldwin, Gary Oldman, who's he's considered for everything, I think. Uh, Liam Neeson and Mickey Rourke. Did no one else hear Frank Sinatra? Yes, I heard that. Yes. But because that was when it was originally optioned, not for this one, though. Yeah, because it was they were contractually obliged to offer him it, weren't yeah. they? Because it was, <laughs> well, it was it was originally what was it? It was from an, this is something I didn't know before. 
I was researching it for this, that it's based on a novel. Yeah. And it's yeah. A, a novel which is a sequel to a film, to a novel that was made into a film where yeah. Frank Sinatra played the lead role. So they were contractually obliged to offer him the sequel <laughs> Can as well. Can you imagine? <laughs> Flipping out. <laughs> I did it but, my yeah. way as he yeah. shoots everybody in the face. <laughs> 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 Yippee-ki-yay. ba <laughs> Okay, right. Well, I think that's a perfect point. We need to. We're going to take a break now. We're going to uh, remove the, uh, the the phrase "yippee kaye" from uh, from Andy's uh, vocabulary somehow. And uh, now later, that very same man, Andy Goulding, is going to be taking a look at some of the best ever movie sequels, and we'll be talking more about Die Hard. And that's all after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy, read by Alan Rickman. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will keep our producer Johnny supplied with tight white vests and ammo. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the party, pal! There we go. Welcome back to Spoiler, and uh, where we're reviewing Die Hard, 1988. Oh, it's a long time ago now, isn't it? Oh, now the Die... I can't even... Yeah, Yaz. Yaz and the, Yaz? Plas- Yaz and the plastic population. Uh, the only way is up uh, was there, and I was on my first ever uh, weeks-long boys' brigade camp away from home. <laughs> I got a Beryl the Peril annual for Christmas, 1988. <laughs> I always remember that. Beryl the Peril. Where was Beryl the Peril from? She was the Beezer or was that the Beano? Topper, I think. Oh, to- oh. Topper. Of course, Topper. <laughs> enough of that pleasant. Enough of that pleasantries. Let's get back to people shooting at each other in the kneecaps. Um, <laughs> now, the Die Hard franchise is no stranger to sequels, with Bruce Willis donning his increasingly sweaty white vest no less than four further times, to arguably diminishing returns. But are movie sequels just a symptom of an industry bankrupt of new ideas and afraid of taking risks? Or can a good sequel actually elevate a film series to new heights? Andy has been finding out. We're doing a sequel. We're back by popular demand. Come on, everybody, strike up the band. We're doing a sequel. The word sequel is guaranteed to set alarm bells ringing in the heads of film fans everywhere. Chiefly because we fear this ringing is reflected in the cynical of cash registers and the heads of the movie executives responsible. And yet we still flock to see these often cut-price follow-ups to films we adore because, like a spurn lover looking for a new partner with similar attributes to their ex, we crave to recapture that flush of excitement we experienced the first time round. Sadly, sequels at their worst are either greatest hits compilations transplanted to a different setting, such as Home Alone 2, a film so lazy it just shipped all the original movie's booby traps to New York. Hey, you guys give up? Have you had enough pain? Or hurriedly slapped together fiascos which don't even manage to re-engage key cast members, like the Keanu-less Speed 2. <laughs> I do believe we have a man! 
Even reuniting an original cast and crew is no guarantee of recapturing the magic. Nostalgia has clouded many minds to just how feeble Ghostbusters 2 really was. For the most part, sequels tend to be decent continuations of mega-hits, which, by definition, lack the freshness of their predecessors and spill just a little too much water while trying to walk the narrow tightrope between the demands of the narrative and the demands of the audience. Die Hard 2 did a fair job by once again trapping John McClane within a confined space. Another basement, another elevator. How could the same shit happen to the same guy twice? But as the franchise rumbled on and the settings grew more expansive, the series drifted towards more generic and forgettable popcorn fodder. Although my dad still thinks Die Hard 4.0 is one of the greatest films ever made. Likewise, the Lethal Weapon films became less intense as Mel Gibson's Martin Riggs inevitably gained distance from the tragic death of his wife and found comfort in his friendship with Danny Glover's Roger Murtar and a new relationship with Rene Russo's Lorna Cole. By the time of the fourth instalment, he was a tepid weapon at best. I'm too old for this too. But sometimes sequels have defied expectations by either being every bit as good as, or sometimes even better than, the original films that spawned them. The Godfather Part 2 is regularly voted as one of the finest films ever made. The Empire Strikes Back and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade are often hailed as the highlights of their respective franchises, while Aliens has managed to achieve a similar level of acclaim as its predecessor by coming at the same subject matter by way of a different angle and director. For those of us who just can't get enough of a good thing, Here's my list, in no particular order, of five terrific sequels that put paid to the notion of diminishing returns. At number one, we have an early example of a sequel from 1935, James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein. Whale directed the original Frankenstein in 1931, and the potential for a follow-up was strong enough that Universal altered the ending to allow Colin Clive's Dr. Henry Frankenstein to survive. Though Boris Karloff's iconic monster also appears to die a fiery death at the end of the original film, he too was back for the sequel. Alone. Bad. Friend. Good. Though Whale was resistant to making the film, producer Carl Lemley Jr. astutely recognised that Whale's participation was as crucial as that of his returning stars and managed to persuade him. Whale had little faith in the film, so he decided to give it a more tongue-in-cheek flavour, indulging his love of camp humour. To this end, he created another iconic universal monster in the fantastic Elsa Lanchester's titular bride, a wide-eyed, hissing abomination with striking two-tone hair and a thing or two to learn about tactful rejection. She's alive! Alive! Despite an intervening four years between Wales' two Frankenstein films, Bride of Frankenstein was an instant hit and is still considered to be one of the finest sequels ever made. Whether it surpasses the original is genuinely too close to call, but suffice it to say, both films are monstrously entertaining. <laughs> At number two is Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. The sequel to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bogus Journey switched directors from Stephen Herrick to Pete Hewitt, but reunited its stars Alex Winter, Keanu Reeves and George Carlin, as well as original writers Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon. Ted, what? I have a feeling we're about to embark upon a most unprecedented expedition. Excellent Adventure was a fun but unoriginal time-trapping comedy, in which high school underachievers Bill and Ted assemble a series of historical characters to help them pass their history exam. 
A less ambitious sequel would have focused once again on time hopping, but Bogus Journey instead sends the bodacious duo straight to hell when they are thrown off a cliff by evil robot replicas of themselves in order to alter history and prevent their band Wild Stallions from hoping to create a utopian future. Dead? We're dead, dude. No way. This way. Sound needlessly complicated? That's without even mentioning the 15th century princesses, the parody of Bergman's The Seventh Seal, the nightmarish vision of the Easter Bunny, or the alien being with the ability to split himself into identical twins, let alone the fact that the Grim Reaper plays a mean double bass but is not so great at twisting. You might be a king or a little street sweeper, but sooner or later you dance with the Reaper. (laughs) While some critics felt Bogus Journey lacked the simple, uncluttered charm of its predecessor, Others, myself included, agreed with Roger Ebert that it was the kind of movie where you start out snickering in spite of yourself and end up actually admiring the originality that went into creating this hallucinatory slapstick. I got a full-on robot chubby. At number three is James Cameron's Terminator 2, Judgment Day. I need your clothes, your boots and your motorcycle. In the seven-year interim between his two Terminator films, Cameron had also made another superb sci-fi action sequel with Aliens, the follow-up to Ridley Scott's 70s classic Alien. But Terminator 2 feels like a more personal work, expanding on the director's own concepts and characters in an ingenious way. While the first Terminator film had been a small independent production, Terminator 2 was the most expensive film ever made upon its release in 1991. It won numerous awards for its stunning visual effects, makeup and sound design, But crucially, Terminator 2 was not just a sterile exercise in cinematic one-upmanship. It had a strong storyline, a good cast, and real heart. The latter quality was achieved by the fantastic idea of casting Arnold Schwarzenegger in the role of the good guy, a reprogrammed version of the T-800 model Terminator that had made such a menacing villain in the first instalment. Come with me if you want to live. This time, Arnie is the protector of young John Connor, the only hope for the future, who's being hunted down by Robert Patrick's T-1000 model, a sleek, streamlined update of Arnie's outdated, hulking contraption. You gotta listen to the way people talk. You don't say affirmative. You say, no problemo. And if someone comes off to you with an attitude, you say, eat me. And if you want to shine them on, it's hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista, baby. Terminator 2 understands that audiences would not be satisfied with the mere retread of the cat-and-mouse action of the previous film, and so it delivers on the narrative from cleverly switching the Terminator's purpose while not losing any of the single-minded determination or imposing presence that made him so popular with audiences in the first place. They further Terminator films forward, none have come close to this lesson in how to make an action sequel right. No problemo. At number four is Jennifer U. Nelson's Kung Fu Panda 2. DreamWorks animation has often been seen as an inferior alternative to Disney and Pixar, and the Shrek and Madagascar franchises seem to bear this out. But among the studio's oft-overlooked pantheon are great films like How to Train Your Dragon, Megamind, and the Kung Fu Panda series. My fist hungers for justice. That was my... The concept for Kung Fu Panda, an overweight panda named Poe who trains to become the dragon warrior and protector of the Valley of Peace, sounds unpromising, and I admit to initially overlooking the film's considerable charms, but when I first watched its sequel with no expectations whatsoever, I was blown away by just how hilarious, fast-paced and emotionally engaging it was, with Poe's training dispensed with in the first instalment, 
Kung Fu Panda 2 is able to launch straight into a quest narrative that makes brilliant use of its characters and ancient Chinese setting. The only reason you are still alive is that I find your stupidity mildly amusing. Well, thank you. But I find your evilness extremely annoying. Who do you think you are, Panda? Who do you think I am, Peacock? <laughs> <laughs> Not only did Kung Fu Panda 2 surpass the original, it made me go back and watch its predecessor in a whole new light and become immersed in this lovingly created world. Plus, what film wouldn't be improved by dropping in the psychotic, kung fu-hating peacock voiced by Gary Oldman? <laughs> Why are we laughing? Finally, at number five, we have Joe Dante's Gremlins 2, The New Batch. Following the success of Dante's original Gremlins film, Warner Brothers pushed for a sequel, but Dante declined, having always envisaged Gremlins as a standalone piece. But when he was offered the unprecedented perk of complete creative control, as well as a budget three times that of his previous film, Dante was tempted back. Not wanting to sully the memory of his affectionate B-movie tribute, Dante came up with the idea of making Gremlins 2 a satire on the first film, as well as on the concept of sequels in general. To this end, he created a bulging, anarchic, cartoonish blast of a picture, which riffs on scenes from the original film with self-referential glee. After their bizarre, blood-curdling rampage of destruction, these strange creatures now appear to be mounting what seems to be a musical number. Dante packs the film to bursting with movie references, celebrity cameos, animated sequences featuring Looney Tunes characters, and a fourth wall-breaking moment in which the Gremlins take over the film projector. Gremlins? In this theatre? Now? Critic Leonard Moulton, who hated the first Gremlins film, even makes an appearance in which he gives a damning review of the Gremlins home video, only to be set upon by its monstrous stars. Now I know some people found this movie fun, but me, I'd rather spend two hours having root canal work done. What's fun about a movie full of ugly, slimy, mean-spirited, gloppy little monsters who run amok and attack innocent people? Our moviegoers so desperate for entertainment that this kind of trash has for fun. Whoa, wait a minute! Though it received mixed reviews from baffled critics, in many ways, Gremlins 2 is the ultimate sequel in that it has its cake and eats it. It gives audiences a bigger, more outlandish version of the source material, while also berating them for fueling the demand for such watered-down spectacles in the first place. As a lover of cinema, I'm willing to take these lumps, but I'm also willing to feed like a wild animal at the trough, because every so often, amongst the swill, there's the promise of snuffling out a truffle. Andy, thanks for that, as always. Now, for the record, uh, and you know I'm a fellow appreciator of lists, I'm going to put in my top five of your ever best writings amongst the swill that there's the promise of a snuffling out a truffle. <laughs> Which I know you said better than I just did, but it's, it's really, I'm going to, I've, I've been trying to, since I have... <laughs> Since I read that on the email it came over on, I've been trying to find a way of bringing that into everyday conversation. <laughs> Not a bit of it. You've really got to choose it. But um, let's pick you up on that. Ghostbusters 2. Feeble? <laughs> I think so. What? I think so. Come on. Uh, I, 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 used, I used to enjoy it, but now going back to it, you really, that thing where they walk the Statue of Liberty into the... It's rubbish. <laughs> 
It's it, it, the Statue of Liberty when they were, isn't it like like far too small? It is far and, too small. Uh, and they control it with one of those Nintendo Power like joysticks, don't they, from the era? But it's powered by ghosts. I think you've, you've missed the reality part. <laughs> I mean, I mean, watch it again, watch it again. But th- no, this is it. I've actually written this down. I, I, this, is how, this is how clever I think you are, right? <laughs> knowing, knowing that I don't like recommendations and don't act on recommendations, I think you put that in there to get me to disagree with you and then go and watch it again. Ah, uh, well. Sneaky. Right, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about how I watch this film. And, I, I, you know, I'm a bit peculiar. I can watch things in dribs and drabs. You know, I've become used to this over the years for, for various reasons. And I thought, well, what I, I think like you, Rachel, you know, because I feel like I'm so familiar with this film. I thought, well, I'll just stick it on in the background, do something. And I was, I was preparing tea, cooking or something, something like that. And it got to the point where, and it wasn't the first bit where Alan Rickman comes in, because he's just walking around a lobby. That's kind of not, you know, neither in or there. When he opens his little book on the steps and there's gunfire gone off and stuff like that and he's got everyone's attention and his body movement. And at that point then I knew that I had to watch Alan Rickman, be Alan Rickman or, you know, the hands grew away. But really, you know, we're, we're soaking up Alan Rickman every little bit we can of him these days. And I just don't know, right, turn that off, stick on a podcast or the radio instead <laughs> while you're doing your tea and come back to this later because you need to watch this character. You can't, you, you can't, you can't listen to him. Um, and I mean, really, he, he outshines everyone, doesn't he? I mean, he'd, 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 I'm sure you read the same things as I did in prep for this. You know, he's been in Hollywood like four days or something like that. And he, he gets this part, doesn't want to do it. And it's funny, Rachel, because actually I, mean, I, I made a note here that, you know, from what you were saying earlier about the uh, the, the, the black characters in, in there, you know, you think they were pretty stereotyped uh, in, in there. I mean, it's actually he, he sort of read the script and said that he thought that every uh, the, uh, the, uh, the black characters had a, a positive outcome you know well, I'll, mm. I'll, I'll do take your point on the limo driver there um you know so that they, they were positive and they were intelligent and you know that's that's one of the reasons that's, he, that's one of the reasons he took it but yeah i mean he's fantastic isn't he oh God, <laughs> just wonderful i think this is i think he and bruce actually i'll take you to task on bruce because i think he's got something i don't know what it is <laughs> i can't oh no it. no he's good but he's, yeah. he's got something and for me here's the reason that when you start watching it turgid as that start is you will keep watching it because he's interesting he's doing some funny things with his mouth he has a very strange little pout that he does but he's he's so charismatic and you do watch him and then he's joined by alan rickman you think oh this is going to be good and that's what makes die hard the film that it is it's nothing to do with the set pieces with the dialogue with the rest of the acting it's to do with those two people and they just elevate it to a place that it really probably shouldn't have deserved Mm. but it does because of them Alan Rickman, yes, when he opens that book, and he doesn't even read anything out of it, I don't know what it's for, but he just <laughs> like gets a, a little book out. Is and it you a think, book or a file of fact? You're I about to be schooled. And it's just, <laughs> oh, you just think, yes, this is so fantastic. Look at and and you just, it just makes you miss him even more. Yeah. But it's just fantastic. Every single scene he's in, you cannot take your eyes away from the screen. He's just wonderful. Mm. Well, I had a great quote from uh, Stephen E. D'Souza, who, who uh, wrote the script for Die Hard. And he said that he wrote it as if uh, Hans Gruber was the protagonist, not John McClane. And uh, the quote he said was, uh, if he had not planned the robbery and put it together, Bruce Willis would have just gone to the party and reconciled or not with his wife. You should sometimes think about looking at your movie through the point of view of the villain who's really driving the narrative. And this is something that I think, for me, this is what makes Die Hard. And I should say at this point that I do think Die Hard is a brilliant film in in many ways. In terms of outright entertainment and rewatchability, 
I mean, I, I sit down, I flip channels and Die Hard is on. I'll go in at any time and I'll usually watch it to the end. I've got a, quite a few sort of ideological problems with it, which I'll get to later because they come in at the end mostly. <laughs> uh, but like, I think it's it's really different from a lot of other action films. I mean, I know we talked about, we've, we've called it turgid, but that, that build-up, I think, works well for me. And I think it's got a great concept and a great structure, which really kind of differentiates it from other action films. I mean, the the concept of containing the action within one location really works for me. And this is why I wasn't as... I, I did feel it was diminishing returns with the sequels. I mean, it's been a long time since I saw it, but I wasn't actually that keen on Die Hard with a Vengeance. Because as, it open, as they open out, like, the sort of area that's across it becomes more generic for me. Whereas having it in that one building which is something they're unable to sustain in the sequels, but works really well. Remember we talked about The Breakfast Club, another Breakfast Club link, uh, and how they originally planned to do that as a series of films that would follow the characters at sort of five-year intervals. And I always thought they couldn't have done that because what works with The Breakfast Club is containing them in that place where things can really go off in that one small environment. And you couldn't keep putting them back in there. It would be too artificial. And, and for me, Paul, that's Paul Gleeson's unable to control them again. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, for me, it feels like Paul Gleeson, it feels like this is Dean Vernon having been sacked from his educational yeah. role, <laughs> strolling into his next and making just as big a hash of it as, as anything else. Who's the deputy in this, wasn't he? I mean, so where was the chief? He's on holiday. This was a Christmas, big deal, Christmas right? Holiday. Yeah, a Christmas holiday. Which brings me to something else. This is where I have problems with Die Hard. It's not in. Uh, I agree. I think it's a really good premise. This idea of having it in one place. Yeah. And and Alan Rickman is completely right. The black characters are positive, um, but there are things like, for example, so he gets through to an emergency call operator, right? Yeah. And he's going, we have problems, we have problems. <laughs> she immediately doesn't believe him. Where does that come from? Where in the guidebook does it say, if you receive an emergency call from an unusual source, just Im- immediately imagine it's a hoax because it's bound to be. And then she hears gunfire. That doesn't alert her either. She goes, oh, well, it's clearly a hoax. It's people pulling crackers. Like, it's Christmas. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And then... I, I do love, it's crazy, the reaction of um, Al when the body falls on the bonnet of his car. <laughs> and he, his immediate reaction is just to keep backing out until he, like, crashes. <laughs> I'm like, just stop what you're doing. But, oh, God, it was so funny. And I thought, I shouldn't be laughing at this, but I'm laughing. My, oh, it's hilarious. Well, I, don't, I think the body on the car scene is supposed to be a bit of a I really dark hope it is. comic moment, mm, isn't it? Yeah. But I, I agree with you in that, like, I think there's a real kind of inverse snobbery in Die Hard about uh, people who work from behind desks. Mm. I mean, th- I think it, when uh, when John McClane is talking to Alan and he says, oh, you must have been out on the street at some time. You, you're not the kind of cop who works from behind a desk. I'm thinking, what the hell is wrong with being a cop who works from <laughs> exactly. behind a desk? And uh, I think it's the same with, like, so when all the other people like Paul Gleason turn up and then the FBI guys turn up or even... They're even more ridiculous with their helicopter and everything. And it, it's it's like they're saying it, it, only the, the lone man on the street can really make a difference. Yeah. And that really bugs me every time. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a note here just saying, how about the FBI guys? Very odd. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all you need to say. It's like, just what? Bonkers. I mean, and there is that, that section of the film. And I think I think Roger Ebert picks, picks up on this really quite, quite well at the, at the time when he wrote it. Just that there is this section that it really sort of slows down in. Um, and it is this sort of conversation back and forth over the walkie-talkie, um, which actually he wasn't using his hands to operate. You know when he's picking the glass mm. out of his feet? I think, well, 
No, even if you had the, the button sellotape down, where <laughs> you're in an office, you know, sellotape, bit of roll by. Okay, that's fine. But when you press that down, that means you can't hear the other person on the other end. Now, I know we're being picky. We're being very, very picky because, you know, I, I, I think overall we all enjoyed this, didn't we? However, it really did slow down. And whether it's the FBI, FBI guys just turning up and being nuts, um, and whether it's the conversation between him and Al. And there's someone did, did mention this on the internet saying, look, the, Bruce Willis was shooting this and moonlighting at the same time. And they put the, apparently they, they sort of had this section in because because Bruce Willis was exhausted, you know, he was just coming yeah. so they, they put a lot of di- dialogue in and let's face it, this is not, it uh, uh, goes there, for, for, for dialogue. And in fact, you know, I, I quite often refer to my notes, but I, I enjoy writing these. <laughs> and I just, you can see here, I've just got at the top here, it says plot, stroke, dialogue, and nothing after it. And that, 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 at the time I thought to myself, well, I'm sure Andy or Rachel talk about that if I just bring it up. Right? <laughs> but actually, I mean, that, that what I've written there says it all Sick, because, yeah. you know, it's, it's okay, right, fair enough. However, the, some of the stunts in this, and, you know, if you're all right, over the top, and, and my wife saw him jump over off, off the edge there with the, with the, the, the fire hose and he sort of, oh, she said, That's, that won't happen. It, it, okay, right, no, 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 it would. But the, the stuff in the, in the lift shaft, for example, mm. is very, very tense. Yes, great. And really edge of the edge of the seat stuff, yeah. you know. I mean, and, and, and really good. And I, I think probably you know reasonable. I was about to say pioneering, but I think I'm over egging the pudding a bit there. I don't think it probably is. Mm, very slightly. Yeah. I don't know. Have there been, I'm sure there've been. Things I, there've been stuff like that before. I, I mean, so long. I think it so was long quite, ago now. <laughs> It was quite spectacular. I'm, I'm struggling to think of action films that were quite this spectacular before yeah. Die I think it, it was part of why it made such an impact mm. but I mean there were there were big action films Aliens came before this didn't it yes yeah. and that that was a, well. that was a, a big deal and had a mm. Uh, and he's, he's probably a better film, actually. Mm. But I think maybe Bruce Willis is one of the first action heroes to actually look like he could do all that stuff. And to get really dirty yeah. and really bloodied up. And he remains bloodied up and he remains dirty. Because so often in films before this, they'd do this huge action sequence mm-hmm. and they'd be almost pristine. And it's like, mm-hmm. what? But he didn't mind looking scruffy and... Yeah bloody and filthy quite frankly <laughs> like whenever bonnie goes to kiss him at the end of the film i'm like ooh, he's a bit sweaty get yourself cleaned up yeah just go have a shower or something <laughs> but i like this this thing about bruce willis's shooting schedule i think that this really helped the film because the the structure of it i like that it takes in these multiple viewpoints so it does favor john McClane and hans gruber but then it goes off for long periods of time to like reporters and cops and other people and it gives it a more kind of a rounded view it's not just i mean it seems it seems in the uh, the ca- the advertising campaign and everything they were really pushing this one guy against the odds thing but it it does it does show like the 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 bigger kind of implications uh, I know, like pretty much everyone else that affects outside the building appears to be a complete idiot. But it, it's, it's apart from Al. Apart, apart from, from Al. Al, although I mean, he shot a kid because he had a ray gun. He's, he's not that. <laughs> he's not that bright, is yeah. he? Yeah. But he redeems himself by shooting that blonde guy. Oh yeah. Well, we're, we're going to get to this later because this is one of Apparently. my issues. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, we're on. We're on it now. Why not dive in? Okay. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Most of the things that I have serious issues with in Die Hard happen at the end. Mm. I hate this thing about him having shot this kid with a ray gun. I mean, we <laughs> we we get this, <laughs> we get this this one. He, he doesn't even really go into it. He just says uh, he had a ray gun. It seemed real enough to me, so I shot him. And you, you're like, well, what? 
it, it, that doesn't that doesn't exonerate you. It, it, you. We don't get enough information about this to know whether whether he's. I mean, Bruce Willis is like, yeah, you should be on the street, man. No, you shouldn't. You're going to shoot a kid. Uh, he's, <laughs> he, he doesn't have any information about this, and yet he says, "I haven't fired my gun since then." And this is is taken as a bad thing. So we get this thing tacked on at the end. This like blatantly Freudian image that lingers on this gun as he shoots this man, and it's like, yes. Now he's got his manhood back because he's he shot a full-grown man instead of a child. Mm. I don't think it needed... I, I like the idea of Al and this constant communication between them. I don't think we need this little dramatic angle for him. Keep him as kind of a light character. And I mean, people have suggested that when he comes out of the building, you know, when he sees him and they realise they are and they go up and they hug each other, that it's it's almost like a romantic moment. And so they needed, they put that bit in where he shoots someone just to go, oh, no, wait, it's all right. It's not, it's not mushy. Look, he can, he can be a man as well. And that, that really, that mm. really annoys me. I totally agree with that. I, I thought it was a lovely bromance moment. I think you're both, just... I think you're, sorry to interrupt, I think you're both missing the point. How did that guy get down from the chains in the first place <laughs> in order to point. bring his gun out and be shot in <laughs> He's a bit special, that guy, though. There's one of my favourite lol moments, and I've actually put it down here. Somebody says we're... There's the blonde guy. I can't remember his name. Is it Carl or something? Somebody says we're back in business, and the music goes, ba-bam, and the guy's head swishes in time with the ba-bam, and his blonde hair flows like a, hair, like a shampoo advert. I'm like, I love this guy. I don't even care that he's evil. So... I mean, we talk about the ending there as well. I mean, I, all right, we're being nitpicky, aren't we? But I'm going to go for it still. <laughs> um, and this, I don't think this is just with this. This is with every film like this. Is, is the fact that, right, Gruber's got the upper hand, right? He's got hold of Holly and Bruce Willis has lost his, he's put his gun down, his head's, you know, he's, he's holding his hands behind his back and he starts lad doing that silly laugh. <laughs> <laughs> he's got $640 million in bearer bonds, whatever they are. <laughs> okay, bearer bonds. And why didn't he just shoot him? I don't know. It's, it's the same old thing with a Bond villain, isn't it? You know, but, you know, it's, yeah. if I'm ever in that situation, yeah. and it's becoming increasingly likely, <laughs> I'm just going I'm just to <laughs> shoot the guy and get, and, and get on with my 600. What would you do with a bearer Bond? I, if I knew what one was, I could probably <laughs> yeah. tell you. He seems to think they can go to a beach and sip mm. cocktails with them. So. <laughs> mm, it sounds like fun. So the ending, I mean, was everyone that, well, we're all dithering about the ending, mm. aren't well, we? I have one other, <laughs> I have oh, one oh, other really really strong problem with the ending. Well, like strong problems from Andy, go it's on. It's the symbolism of the watch that Holly received. Did anyone pick up on this? Oh, here we go. Holly no. receives a Rolex watch oh, yes. earlier in the film. It's said that it's been given to her because she's that good at her job. And then as Gruber falls from the building at the end, he grabs the watch. Oh, and yeah. then John McClane comes and takes it off and he falls to his death. And to me, this feels like he's unshackling her from her career. He's like, mm. he's the man. Has to, I mean, she's, she's been the strong woman all the way through. Right at the end, she suddenly is in the damsel in distress role. And then he comes, he unshackles her from her career with this watch and then immediately she's yes i'm uh, holly mclean a lot of people online have said which is also a good reading of it that uh, the watch represents kind of capitalist evil and because it's this this big vulgar gold thing and it's a condemnation of reaganomics and it was a real kind of a attack on the the era but uh but it, it, there's just something about the, the fact that it's it's him who comes and, and literally like takes the shackles off her 
to make him fall to a death. I also think that at this point, it's the one moment where it would have been better if uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had played the role because at this <laughs> point, when he when he tucks the Rolex off and Gruber falls to his death, he could have gone, not on my watch. Oh. <laughs> and he'd have delivered that beauty. <laughs> all, all, all that for that gag. I mean, I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna have to be the I'm going to have to be the voice of reason here. The voice of reason. Just say, well, I mean, would you prefer to keep hold of the watch, but then it'd be on her arm and she'd fall down with him? I, I mean, prefer the watch on. wasn't there at all. I prefer he just he's just gone. The watch has got to be there for a reason. I think I admire Diard's ambition in putting some symbolism in there, mm. but. I think probably the, the capitalist angle is what they were going for, but I think subconsciously this thing has crept in where the woman has to be, at the end, just revert to damsel saved and then go off together with the man. But so doesn't, just thinking about this, I've never thought about the angle that you've just talked about, so I'm, I'm just thinking on the hoof a little bit here, but... She punches him in the nose. Yeah, is that not her reasserting her feminine strength? There is that. Yeah, strength? yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think, I don't think at all that that Holly completely loses her position as a strong woman in this at all. But maybe I'm reading too much into it. But it's just a little bit of a niggle for me. Well, I'm going to chair this and say yes, you are. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, as, as we talk about the the, the Rickman <coughs> drop, my favourite bit of, of trivia that were picked up on IMDb, and there was a lot for this. I mean, you can waste. Well, I did. I wasted a, a, nearly a day <laughs> uh, looking through this. Uh, but my, my, I think my favourite was the fact that when uh, when they dropped Rickman uh, playing uh, Hans Gruber uh, at the end of it, they dropped him 21 feet onto a giant airbag. Uh, but the stuntman who dropped him dropped him on the count of two, not three, to get the right reaction. <laughs> <laughs> so harsh. <laughs> Do that to Alan Rickman. I know. <laughs> Uh, one one thing I want, was wondering about this, talking about the sequels, was this one of the first examples of where not like not all the sequels were just called two, three, four? Because it was Die Hard two, but then it was Die Hard with a Vengeance, wasn't it? Yeah, then four point oh. Yeah, it, it was four point oh. But in in North America, I think it was called something like Live Fast Die Hard, mm. and then the fifth one was called A Good Day to Die Hard. And uh, that's that's the thing that I don't like. I like the sequels to just be numbered. Just because it, it's annoying for me, I've, I've, I've never seen I've never seen a Jason Bourne film what? in my life. Really? And yeah, and that's because I wait till they were they were coming on telly, and then I look at it and I think, is this the first? It's right, the Bourne supremacy. Does that come after the Bourne identity and before like the Bourne midwifery or whatever <laughs> it is? And I, I can't put them in order. Okay, so when we leave it now, well, I'll write. I'll look on the internet. I'll write a list for you, and then all you need to do is tune into ITV Two anytime. Any yeah. point. <laughs> uh, one of them will be playing. You can watch it. Well, I won't be rushing to death. I'm not a big action film fan, really. So Bourne, I'm, I'm not in no rush to see it. Really. Okay, well, Unless just, we do it for this. Uh, Bourne just, identity just is worth an, a watch. Just making a note here. Series six. <laughs> <laughs> May Candy watch Bourne film. Series six is that the one where we're doing Singing in the Rain as well, Paul? No. Uh, right, okay, right. So I think we've uh, we've wound up on that, and we need to get to our rating. Um, now then, is this six hundred and forty million dollars in bearer bonds, <laughs> or is it six pounds forty in a postal order? Uh, so it's a postal. Is it a postal order? I mean, the thing is, I mean, it's somewhere in between. Anyway, what, Andy, what do you um, think? Well, I'm going to say it's the bearer bonds because I think it's it's something that I would. I like to have, but I'm not entirely sure I get it. 
Yeah, I agree with you on that one. <laughs> and even though I don't know what the heck a bearer bond yeah. is. <laughs> I'm gonna, so. I think I'm going to buy the whole team a $1 bearer bond. Wait, it's all I've got. <laughs> Uh, in, in something or other, but uh, but uh, coming back to the bearer bonds, and this is this is it. I'm going to put my final uh, final mark on it. The bearer bonds. What is one thing you didn't pick up on, Rachel? Is that the bearer bonds flying through the air at the end was symbolically like snow coming down. So this ah. is what do you know a Christmas film Yay. after all. <laughs> Uh, so Merry Christmas everyone uh, thank you very much for listening and uh, thank you to our producer uh, Johnny thank you Rachel thank you Andy uh, and as talking of Andy let's leave you now with one of his genial poems some years ago in Lincoln I recall there used to be a hairdresser's called Die Hard but with Die spoke D-Y-E in the same town at the same time was a barber's called Blade Runners it seemed that Lincoln's stylists were all action movie punners the truth is, both these businesses were owned by just one person, and with each shop he opened up, the names began to worsen. He named the next place Brush Hour, just marginally deplorable, compared with Perminator 2, this time it's tonsorial. For ageing punks, he started up The Last of the Mohicans, but these punning names drove customers away like vile beacons. So Braiders of the Lost Ark hit an instant losing streak, and his three Lord of the Ringlet shops closed down within a week. The problem was, in Britain, the most buttoned-up of nations, his customers did not like the aggressive implications. By forcing folk to view his skills through such a blood-stained prism, the barber had aligned himself with large-scale barbarism. Hence, when they sat down in his chair, they feared, with palms all sweaty, a bullet in their mullet or a crew cut by machete. And so he moved to Hollywood, his spiritual home, set up a shop called Quiffhanger in praise of Sliced Alone, where now he trims the locks of Ridley Scott and Michael Bay and turns out new director's cuts with every passing day. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can do so via our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us by simply telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show or writing a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're spying on Jim Carrey in The Truman Show. Somebody help me! I'm being spontaneous! If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk, find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. With all things being equal, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. And we want to say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year! What was it you said to me before? Yippee-ki-yay. Muddy Funster. <laughs> <laughs>